Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The housing market is rigged against millennials. That's the position of Edward Glasser, economics professor at Harvard University and a recent guest speaker at the 2019 Scholars' Dinner at the Institute's Toronto headquarters. Canada has wrestled with its red-hot housing markets for years. The skyrocketing cost of owning a home has had a knock-on effect in the bedroom communities of Toronto, Vancouver and Calgary, pushing up prices in those adjacent cities. As supply remains low and demand high, most public policy has centered around tamping down demand through reduced amortization rates and tightened qualifications on who gets a mortgage for how much. But Glasser told a packed crowd that it's the supply side that needs to change. I began my conversation with the professor by taking a simple tact we hear when discussing housing affordability in cities such as New York and London. If you want to be a world-class city, you're just going to have to accept that only the wealthy will be able to afford to live there. One part of the high housing prices is absolutely driven by the fact that Toronto is a world-class city. The robust demand for space in the city is because it's an exciting, economically vibrant, culturally wonderful place to be. But prices are formed by the twin scissors of supply and demand. And just because you have robust demand for something doesn't mean it needs to be expensive. If Toronto built more space, housing, if they supplied more space, if they eliminated the public regulations, which make building difficult, Toronto could be a place that was much more affordable than it is currently. And, you know, we know how this can work. I mean, in the 1920s, New York City built 100,000 units a year, and it remained a city that was affordable, despite one of the great, you know, urban booms of all time. Um, Within the U.S. context, we see growth in places like Texas, where cities like Dallas and Houston are also obviously world-class cities, uh, but they're world-class cities that make it very easy for private developers to deliver homes for ordinary middle-class people, and they make sure that their areas are inclusive as well as economically vibrant. Where do you see opportunity to cut that red tape, cut that regulation? I think it's it's a little presumptuous for me to me to try to dictate what uh, fly Toronto, into Toronto from New York and tell us how to do our so, thing. So I will I will tell you in in a typical American city, we want to think about three types of of areas. One of which is traditional urban brownfield sites. Now these are the easiest because basically you're happy tearing them down. I think the right mission of city government in those areas is just to allow as much density as the market will bear, right? And not to get in, in its way. If the government wants to tax them for building up a little, that's a, that's a great thing to do. But make the permitting process smooth, make it seamless, make it predictable, uh, but just allow as much density as, as possible. And, and that's an area in which uh, I think there's political feasibility. And of course, the, the sidewalk lab site, for example, here in Toronto is on a brownfield site. So it's an example of where you can, you can really get change. In suburban areas, it's much harder. And there are two different versions of this, one of which is if you have a relatively greenfield suburban site, the question is how much density will you allow? And uh, in those areas, typically neighbors have a lot of trouble with you allowing lots of density. Um, that density doesn't typically look like skyscrapers. It might look like attached housing, row housing in, in different ways. Um, but in most parts of the U.S. and Canada as well, it's still going to involve car-oriented uh, living, but it's just going to be slightly more compact. And that feels more difficult than allowing more densification in brownfields areas, uh, but still 
sometimes doable. The third is you take an area that's currently built out and you, you ask yourself how much more infill can you allow in that area. And that's relevant for both older suburbs where they have single family detached housing and maybe they'd like to put some in-law apartments. Um, I tend to be in favor of allowing more of that activity, but I, I'm, I have trouble seeing how you're going to get a lot of new space out of that. And then the other areas is taking areas in which you have five-story buildings and making it easier for people to build 30-story buildings. Those fights are very, very hard. And not not obviously ones that you're that are actually the ones in which you should waste scarce amounts of, of political energy to, to fight. I'm not a civil engineer. I just play one on a podcast. And it strikes me, and I can imagine many critics as well, that part of the reason why we have the regulations we do is to address the densification issues. Like, do you really want 12, 30-story towers in a community that is accustomed to only having low-rise walk-up brownstones, things of that nature? You have the knock-on effects that go into the infrastructure to support that community from traffic flow to water flow, quite frankly. And there's a perception that one of the big reasons why we have this red tape is we want that go slow process so that we can ensure that we've got all of the I's dotted and all of the T's crossed. It sounds like you're more concerned that we're crossing the I's and dotting the T's. So uh, you, you shouldn't need to go through that for every project, right? I mean, you should be able to think through a serious plan for an area that enables you to deliver the infrastructure and then allow the permitting process for each individual project to be relatively speedy. You shouldn't need 10 years, which is not a totally crazy number, to examine the infrastructure implications of every new building. That seems like a, a deeply uh, troubled uh, time time scenario. Um, I would also say that, that it's, yes, all density adds cost, but it's not as if you necessarily are adding more cost by building in a currently dense location than by building on a greenfield on the edge of edge of somewhere. You want to think about the relative contribution in terms of costs of those areas. And for many areas, say, for example, traffic congestion or, or developing uh, delivery mechanisms for water and electricity, you're much better off adding to the density of an existing neighborhood than you are building on the edges. But just to be clear, I mean, that's what property taxes are for. That's what land taxes are for. And that's what, you know, impact fees, if, if they replace rather than simply augment, they replace an existing permitting process. Uh, you can charge people for the cost that they create. Uh, I'm an economist. I certainly believe in that. Now, with that in mind, uh, you've been quoted as saying that the, the housing markets and the regulations and the structure behind it is essentially rigged against the millennial generation trying to break in as a newcomer to the housing market. Absolutely. Uh, these regulations were written by insiders for insiders. Uh, they protect the people who are existing homeowners against both the nuisance of new construction, any potential negative side effects of having new building, uh, and maybe even a little bit against property values going down or not going not going up by as much as they, they otherwise would. You, right? you think this is a NIMBYism problem? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 not this is not an accidental error and which is why it's so hard to fix. This is an area in which which, you know, the residents of traditional bedroom communities have every incentive in the world to block new construction in the area. And they often do so very effectively. But there are losers from there. And part of the problem is the losers weren't at the bargaining table when these rules were put in, right? No one sat around representing the 19-year-old who might have come to the town in five years and would have wanted to build to, to buy a house. That person wasn't, wasn't allowed to vote. And so it's the young, it's the people who aren't owners who, who pay the price of all this. Um, and, and it's part one of the reasons why, you know, for so many younger Americans and possibly younger Canadians as well, the system seems rigged, that their parents' generation was into, able to buy in at a much lower price, has seen large scale uh, price appreciation. Uh, but what can they do? 
Well, then what's the solution here? Because it strikes me that, you know, if you take the traditional economics approach of supply and demand, we know the demand is high. We've attempted with regulations and rules about things like mortgages and uh, amortization rates and attempt to tamp down to a degree that demand. But it strikes me that the only real solution is an increase in supply. Absolutely. Right. Uh, we need to make it possible to build uh, so that people can, can come to great cities. And it's important to remember, every time you're saying no to a new housing project, you're saying no to a family that wants to come and enjoy Toronto, and you're making sure that every renter pays a little bit more as a result of it. There are costs every time you say no. And it is, it is so much better to sort of embrace the process of urban change and just to figure out sensible policies that mitigate the downsides. But how much more supply would we have to be bringing in to effectively provide an entrance for a millennial or any other new home buyer, first time home buyer, without simultaneously depressing the housing market for those who already own? Well, uh, you know, this is an old line from, from my much loved, uh, recently deceased colleague, Marty Feldstein that you know you don't necessarily know from any public policy questions you don't necessarily need to know where you're going to end up you just need to know the right direction you should go in right so i don't necessarily you know in the i'll take boston i don't know how many units boston you know should optimally create i, I don't know what the ideal first best number would be all i know is they should be doing a whole lot more than they currently are doing and so I, I don't think it's plausible, given the political forces that are arrayed against building, that you're ever going to get to a place in which you're going to be building so many houses that you've solved, that you've either solved the problem completely or that you've caused immiseration to the homeowners that currently exist. Sounds like what you just told me is there's very little we can actually do to move the needle. <laughs> well, we, have, we have to fight for it, but you're right. It is, it is hard to, to, which is why it's, it's so important for voices that care about the future of Canada's cities to actually be arguing for, for allowing more space. But I don't think Think, you know, I don't think you're going to get a 400% increase in the amount of construction in, in Toronto anytime soon. If you got a 50% or 100% increase, that would be fantastic. But you know, that wouldn't completely eliminate the problem at all, and nor would it nor would it cause vast decreases in housing prices. It, it strikes me as, as odd. It, it sort of feels like I'm talking to an economist who's saying we, we need to we need to hold back the invisible hand of the markets. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm. In some sense, I'm just arguing for you know, giving people the freedom to build up or to build out if they want to build it on on their own property. I'm arguing for their ability to act unrestrained by the hand of government. You mentioned property taxes. I, I know my property taxes aren't based upon the square footage of my property. They're based on what some guy standing out front of my house decided what my house would be valued at. You've got some opinions as to whether or not I ought to be paying the property taxes I am. That's, that's right. So this is an old idea that goes back to Henry George in the late 19th century, that we are much better served by having a land tax by a prop, than a property tax. And the idea of a land tax is you basically figure out what the land would be worth, you know, without, without your house on it, and then you tax some proportion of that. That means that no matter how much you add, you don't pay more. So if I'm gonna take a downtown area and use it as an empty parking lot, I'm gonna pay a heck of a large land tax on that. And if I put up a skyscraper, I'm not gonna pay any more. So that property tax, by getting rid of the property tax, you get rid of that disincentive to build, and you pretty much ensure that the vacant pro parking lot is gonna to go to the hands of someone who's actually gonna be able to get value out of it, almost assuredly by building up. 
Well, then, if my property taxes are intended to pay for the sewage system that's connected to my house, the water system, and all of the infrastructure necessary to keep me in the 21st century lifestyle to which I've become accustomed, if I'm paying based upon the square footage of my grass versus the, the house itself, if I put a 24-story tower on my property, suddenly there's a need for increased infrastructure, but it's not being paid for. So ideally, infrastructure pays for itself through user fees. So the first best is you have a land tax which doesn't distort how high you build up, and you pay for the sewage by, by sewage fees. You pay for the you pay for the electricity by ele electricity fees that are fully encompassing the the actual cost of delivering the infrastructure. So you don't subsidize those things by you know with property taxes. If that's not possible, then yeah, you should have something that that is some sort of an impact fee, maybe on an ongoing basis. But it still doesn't necessarily scale up with the value of the real estate per se. It has to do with how many people are living in the area, and in some senses, uh, or using the the properties, and still should be scaled to that amount. So the idea that if I've got a condo, I'm going to be paying a certain percentage versus if I've got yeah. a, a tract of land. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so it's. Um, but but ideally, in most cases, and, and you know, this is this isn't such a hard thing to do. You you pay for your own waste. You pay for your own electricity. You pay for your own water. Something that we've become accustomed to, just apply to the other aspects yeah. of our, our household lives. You know, people drive until they can afford, and that's pushing the millennials either into the downtown condos or they have to spend an hour, you know, to drive each way to get what they want um, to get that leave it to Beaver house. What about those who say, well, you know, if you want, you know, the white picket fence, you're going to have to drive, and that's just something you have to accept. Well, uh, so uh, you know, I, it's certainly not anyone's right to have a white picket fence right next to right next to downtown, uh, but we have to ask ourselves if people are driving longer than they should have because of housing regulations that we've imposed. And we also need to ask ourselves whether or not we have the right policies towards driving, right? In the U.S., we've moved away from having gas tax funded uh, highways towards having highways funded by general tax revenues. I, I've got, I'm not, you know, I mean, setting aside the issue of, of climate change, it's not that, you know, we necessarily have, a, have, an, have anything against people driving, um, but there's no, clearly no reason to subsidize people driving, right? And that's exactly what we do when we have roads that are paid for by general tax revenue. So we really do want then, you know, both the users to pay for the infrastructure they use, and then once you start considering the impact of carbon emissions and, of course, the impact of traffic congestion, you want taxes on, on top of that. Oh, no, you're not an American who just came up to Canada and saying we have to have toll roads everywhere, are you? <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, in general. Uh, uh, this is the beautiful thing about being an economist uh, who works for a university. I'm not trying to get elected to anything, and it's my job to say things that are unpopular. But I don't know a lot of cases in which you have middle or upper middle income people who are using infrastructure where I don't typically want them to pay those costs. And and that means actually, you know, paying in some sensible way. You can do this now with, with electronic, uh, you know, GPS-based charges, time of day in the car. It doesn't require you to wait on, on uh, any tolls like in the old days. And, you know, let me make this sort of particularly concrete. If you think about the case of autonomous vehicles, right? Autonomous vehicles can either be an urban solution or an urban problem. And the reason why they can be a great problem is that what they do is they lower the cost of sitting in traffic. The first order impact on behavior of lowering the cost of sitting in traffic is that more people will be willing to sit in traffic, right? Which means that autonomous vehicles have the potential to make our streets more congested, less functional, because everyone will be sitting there reading the newspaper while they're doing it and things will, things will just get worse. Now, the way they turn into something that's an urban advantage rather than a disadvantage is if you introduce electronic GPS-based tolling on these things based on time of day, based on route, 
from the start. And this is not at all an infeasible thing. And the reason why it's so important to do it from the start is that generally, if you try to impose a tax on something that's previously been free, uh, voters go ballistic, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, you can't start saying that all the roads that people have driven on in Toronto for all their lives that they've never paid for, all of a sudden you're going to have to pay. But if you give people a new highway, they'll usually accept that that new highway may come from a toll. I mean, and it, they didn't have this before. I think it's going to be the same thing with autonomous vehicles. If you start the principle of autonomous vehicles is if you're going to drive in, in an autonomous vehicle, you're going to pay for the congestion that you create. People will accept that. But if they've been you know, if they spend the first 10 years of autonomous vehicles for free, then they're never going to accept it. So then let's sort of extrapolate that into the housing market. Mm -hmm. um, is it your suggestion then that the thin edge to the wedge to sort of break open that nimbyism situation is for those new builds to have new ways of funding themselves through that property tax-like scenario being adjusted, as opposed to suddenly all of us have to have a new way of going about our oh, daily well, household that's lives. That's surely true. I think that's almost surely true rather than trying to reconfigure everything in in Toronto's property tax market. You got to boil a frog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think we want to think about sort of just creative ways. And in fact, you can just you could just keep the the existing um, so a simple way to do it is you keep the existing property tax system for everyone, but you have for new buildings, you have a way of, which says, essentially, we're going to give you a discount based on how much you then build, but then we're going to add back in the cost of the services in some way that's actually measured, uh, which is going to be a quite easy thing to do with new buildings that have good sensors. But as you point out, being an economist, you have no obligation to uh, speak with an intent of getting elected. How do we get the political class on board when their focus is an election that may be three and a half years away, two and a half years away? It could be next month. Well, your political class seems usually much better than our political class on, on our side of the uh, of the border. Um, I think it's our obligation to make these points that there's no repealing the laws of supply and demand over and over and over again and hope that, you know, eventually things will happen. You know, it's it's 15 years ago, 20 years ago when I started thinking about these issues and writing about these issues. Um, uh, there were, you know, three economists in the world who thought the same way that I did about it. Uh, and voters were completely uninterested in this. Now it's a small movement, perhaps, but there exists a movement called the Yes in My Backyard movement, the YIMBY movement. And, uh, you know, they have they have meetings, they have events and they're they're a real political thing. And, and there is, you know, they run for state offices in California um, and it's an amazing thing. So change really can happen. It, it doesn't happen quickly, but younger voters really have to focus on the fact that this, this part of the housing system was rigged in a way that is deeply against their interests. And they need to speak not for the status quo, but for change that will actually make a difference to them, which means making it easier to build the kind of housing that they want. And, and where does that come from? Because we think of housing as a municipal issue, but do we need to have more of a top-down approach? Does this need to come from the federal level, and in our case, then the provincial, or your case, state, before you get to the municipal level? Or, or can you can you fix the system from the ground up? So I would do it, uh, in, in, the, in the U.S., I would do it at state, and, and in Canada, I would do it at province. And I think the reason for that is that the federal government is just too removed from these processes. They don't, they don't have enough capacity, at least in the U.S. I mean, every, I, I have been speaking to people at the Department of Housing and Urban Development about this since certainly the administration. Um, and uh, almost universally, they have wanted to encourage communities to build more and never really had any meaningful way of doing that, right? And in some sense, they're just, they're just too far removed from the very granular, you know, decisions that are being made. 
however, the individual communities, once you get outside of a, of a big city, they don't have the countervailing political forces that lead you towards wanting to build more. They really only just have existing homeowners who have every incentive to oppose change. Whereas once you move to the province, you have business owners who very much feel the fact that they have to pay their workers more because the, the housing costs are higher. They have a variety of different interest groups and an ability to, in some sense, to think about the people who might live in this community but aren't, aren't there now. So uh, I think, you know, in the case of the U.S., the battle lines are in the state of California. I can point to policies like Massachusetts Chapters 40B, Chapter 40R, and Chapter 40S, which were all attempts of the state to move municipalities towards doing more. This can be either done with... Um, a takeover of local land use planning. So Massachusetts Chapter 40B essentially provides developers with a get-out-of-jail-free card to use a state planning process when the community doesn't allow enough affordable housing and when the, when the developer agrees to include enough affordable housing units in its product. 40R and 40S are chapters which attempt to create incentives to induce communities to, to permit a little bit more. Um, both ways are conceivable, um, but I think really it's, it's province and state where the change can happen. Edward Glasser is the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, lagging Canadian capital investment, why prosperity is at risk. Join us December 16th for a roundtable luncheon in Toronto with Deloitte Canada Chief Economist Craig Alexander. In the new year, Sidewalk Labs CEO Dan Doktoroff will join us Tuesday, January 28th for a roundtable luncheon on building the sustainable city of the 21st century. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.